I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you wear when a mobster comes over for a drink? Do you expect to be patted down to make sure you're not wearing a wire? What if he already knows you're a cop? Do you dress up? Maybe a tweed suit and tie. It's hard to figure out what mafia casual is, especially when you're a narcotics officer. So we don't know what George White was wearing when the mobster came to his door. That part wasn't in the file. But when Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's chief chemist and head of the MKUltra drug experimentation program, pulled the confidential report on George White, this is what it said about that May 1943 meeting. First, White took a cigarette pack and began knocking out a few of the smokes onto a table. Nearby, he had a vial of liquid THC acetate. Holding up the vial to the light, White plunged a syringe into the top, piercing the rubber seal and drawing the solution through the needle. Then he pierced the syringe into the cigarette. Then another. He did this patiently, one at a time, making sure the solution drenched the tobacco. Every time he finished with a cigarette, he put it in a shot glass, vertically, so any excess liquid would drain out. And once the smokes were dry, he returned them to the pack, like they'd never been touched. Then he put a brand new cellophane wrapper on the box, like it was unopened, like it had just tumbled out of a dime store vending machine. White kept his own untampered cigarettes separate. It's probably safe to say he smoked one or two before he heard the knock at the door. In walks August Del Gracio, a.k.a. Little Augie. He strolls in like he's been there before. That's because he has. Even though White and Little Augie are on opposing sides of the law, White, the celebrated narco agent, and Augie, a made man, the two have grown close. A few years prior, White could have arrested Little Augie in an opium bust, but he let him go. 
It's a weird way to bond. But then again, White needed sources, and little Augie was connected. Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, he knew them all. The two started hanging out, going to each other's homes. They shared drinks, played chess. So when little Augie came over that afternoon, it was business as usual. They knocked a few back and made small talk. You want to smoke, Augie? I got some here. You're a guest. Save them for later. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll take a smoke. <sighs> Listen, Gio, I got a guy parked outside waiting for me, so I got maybe 20 minutes. Sure, sure. Little Augie takes a drag. He feels relaxed. More relaxed than he's ever been. And he starts to talk. And talk. About informants he'd been forced to kill. About men he could have murdered if White needed them to disappear. About a top-secret plan to use the notorious mobster Lucky Luciano to help with the Allied occupation of Italy during the war. Gio, anything I'm telling you? I know, Augie. You repeat anything at all. It would get me killed. You understand that? I'm dead as a doornail. <laughs> I know, Augie. You don't have to worry. You can trust me. The fuck? The fuck you say that for? Say what? Dead as a doornail. Why's a doornail got to be dead? Uh, I don't know, Augie. <laughs> you want another cigarette? Oh, shit. I, I gotta. I gotta go. I got a guy outside. I only got 20 minutes. You've been here over two hours, Augie. Well, now I really gotta fucking go. This meeting, which George White dutifully recorded in his diaries, was the beginning of something big. Nine years later, this all appears in the report that Sidney Gottlieb is looking through. And at that moment... Gottlieb decides there's no better man to handle his top-secret search for a truth drug than George White. If George White could manipulate a mobster, sworn to protect the secrets of the familia with an old-fashioned wartime truth serum, what could he do with something potent? What secrets could he uncover with the full support of the CIA and a supply of LSD? The world was about to find out. iHeartRadio, this is Operation Midnight Climax, an iHeart original podcast. I'm Noel Brown, and this is Chapter 2, Brainwash. Part 1, Criminal Friends. What was George White up to before he landed on the CIA's radar? It's all in the report on Sidney Gottlieb's desk. In 1943, George White was working for the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. He's been traveling the globe on all sorts of crazy missions, 
from arming insurgents in Africa to finding out where, when, and how drug smugglers are getting their illicit goods into the U.S. But then one day, White gets a call from the head of the OSS, Bill Donovan. He's known as Wild Bill, and Wild Bill has a special request. Scientists at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington have developed an intriguing drug from one of the primary compounds in marijuana, liquid THC. But this isn't just a joint in liquid form. It's highly concentrated, the way dish soap promises to clean 50 plates with one drop. A few puffs, and you're gone. In the preliminary tests, subjects given the extract start talking freely, divulging all sorts of information. Wild Bill has a hunch this could be the fabled truth drug the government has been looking for, the one the Nazis are already rumored to have in their possession. And his scientists have already experimented with how to deliver it. They've tried it as a vapor. They've burned it over charcoal. Finally, they settled on a solution that could be injected into cigarettes. The method is so smart and deceptively easy. After all, what's more natural than offering someone a smoke? But Wild Bill needs to test this out, and he needs the kind of subjects the OSS wouldn't care about, the kind of people the OSS could overlook. So he calls George White, someone with criminal friends. Wild Bill wants to know just how talkative someone with real secrets might get, what sort of things a mobster might reveal while knowing the cost. After all, in the mafia's line of work, loose tongues get removed with hedge clippers. So, he tells White to expect a package. Then, he tells him how to use it. And White agrees. But, before he starts calling up criminals, he tries it out on himself. White sits alone in his apartment and starts smoking a soaked cigarette. And almost immediately, he understands. George White smokes himself unconscious. And when he comes to, he scribbles a note in his diary. Knocked out. <laughs> Pretty good stuff, brother. Once White settles on a dose that seems to relax him without causing him to become catatonic, White knows just who to call. A former drug dealer, Little Augie, was reformed. According to White, Augie owned a number of bridal shops in New York, run by his brother and sisters. He ran a clean business, allegedly, supposedly. The Italian mobster had a soft spot for me. He took to dropping by my apartment evenings to play chess, at which he was terrible. They talked. Little Augie laughed. Under the influence, he was a different man. Sure, he spoke about heroin and informants and hits and Luciano. He'd spoken of these things before, but never in such detail, never so freely. One part of him seemed to be aware he was talking too much, but the other part didn't care. So you popped him? Well, yeah, and I could pop anyone else you needed me to, Gio. White had two observations coming out of his conversation with Little Augie. For one, it seemed like the marijuana had been a rousing success. Little Augie forgot he had a driver waiting outside, seemed to forget he belonged to a very tribal organization that would kill him for saying the things he told his friend Gio. 
But White also had a second thought, which he shared with Wild Bill. Was the OSS really looking to get into bed with Lucky Luciano, the least trustworthy ally possible? At the time, Luciano was in prison, serving a 30 to 50 year sentence for running the largest organized prostitution ring in America. Springing him and then asking for his help offended White in a fundamental way. Sure, he was friends with Little Augie, but that was to gather information. He didn't trust a mafia man to lead the U.S. to victory in World War II. So, he told Wild Bill to stay away from criminal gangs. He said Little Augie had told him some concerning things. I don't think the OSS is going to let Luciana out of prison, Augie. There are some very powerful people who can make that happen to you. You ain't see. Wild Bill agreed, and the OSS never employed him. But Luciano would come back to haunt White later, in a major way. For the moment, White had more pressing issues. Wild Bill wanted him to take his show on the road, literally. The OSS tasked White with continuing his reefer madness experiment in new and creative ways he was sent to interrogate 30 American soldiers in Atlanta who were suspected of being closet communists. White was armed with intelligence folders on each one so he could ask leading questions. One by one, they puffed on White's magic cigarettes, oblivious to what was inside of them. One by one, their defiance dissolved in a puff of smoke. Nearly all of them gave White information he didn't have before he walked into the room. The effects seemed to materialize within 15 minutes and lasted for 30 to 90 minutes, just enough of a window of time to climb inside their minds and grab what he could. Part 2. The Manhattan Project. was the end result of $2 billion spent on research and production, of years of feverish labor to harness atomic power ahead of the enemy. The energy that generates the heat of the sun and operates the solar system comes under the will of humankind. White visited the scientists working on the atomic bomb. The OSS wanted to know if the lab boys would discuss classified information under the influence. Let's just pause for a second to acknowledge how bonkers this is. Someone, somewhere, signed off on an experiment to give an untested solution of liquid marijuana to the men responsible for designing the most dangerous weapon in mankind. Do you really want people who can summon the end of the world getting high in the middle of their workday? These weren't necessarily cigarettes either. White injected their food and drink with it, sprayed it on tissue paper they used on their faces. Then he and another operative tried to get information. After all, it's something the enemy might do. Thankfully, no one talked. Considering the government's track record for disposing of national security threats, it was for the best. Throughout his travels, White was partnered with a Harvard Law graduate from OSS. His name is lost to redacted documents. But we do know the man would later confess that no one at the OSS would ever accept a cigarette from him again. While Bill sent the pair across the South, cigarettes at the ready, and their styles didn't exactly mesh. 
George Hunter White was reckless. He parked his car illegally wherever he wanted. He used his gun as a prop to scare waiters. One night at the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans, White pulled out his 22 automatic and shot his initials into the ceiling of their hotel room. G.H.W. It took him several clips. It was like he wanted to sign his work, like he was making history and wanted people to know George White, rejected by the FBI, had finally arrived. But this was just the start of his depraved adventures, an audition for the real work that would begin when Sidney Gottlieb first pulled out his file. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In September 1950, the American public was introduced to a new term, brainwashing. It was coined by a journalist named Edward Hunter, who was writing about the dangers of the Communist Party for the Miami Daily News. Communists in China, Hunter wrote, 
were using terrifying techniques to turn their people into mindless, obedient robots. Edward Hunter's story scared a few people, but largely passed without notice. Then, reports started circulating of Americans who were captured during the Korean War, confessing to biological warfare. A colonel who'd been shot down over Korea admitted to war crimes. So did other soldiers. These captured Americans insisted they had dropped anthrax in North Korea over civilians. Whether that's what really happened is still debated 70 years later. They implored the U.S. government to end the war and signed confessions testifying to their heinous deeds. Some refused to be repatriated. Others stood up in support of communism. Would an American soldier really denounce his own country? For those in the highest levels of government, there was a simple explanation. Some kind of potion must have warped the prisoners' minds. Something must have happened. Suddenly, Edward Hunter's warning didn't seem so hysterical. Brainwashing was a convenient explanation. And it wasn't exactly Edward Hunter's idea. Hunter was a CIA propagandist, a journalist willing and able to spread the agency's message when the call came. And the call did come. To communicate to Americans that the Russians and Chinese were on the forefront of what came to be known as brain warfare. According to Dominic Streetfield's book, Brainwash, the CIA captured two Russian agents in 1951. They were carrying small plastic cylinders filled with liquid. Under questioning, the Russians said, It is powerful drug. We'll turn human into zombie. They will do whatever they are told. The really scary part? No CIA chemists could identify it. Now, imagine you're the CIA. You've just been told the enemy has mastered the art of chemical mind control. And it wasn't just a report. Soldiers were actually defecting. Weird drugs were turning up everywhere. Remember, this was the era of Joe McCarthy, the second Red Scare. Paranoia gripped the agency. Every single drug available had to be rounded up and evaluated for possible use against the United States. The effects needed to be known. This was priority one. Alan Dulles, the CIA's director, believed this operation could determine the very survival of the United States. In fact, Dulles gave a speech in 1953 that touched on the topic. In the past few years, we have become accustomed to hearing much about the battle for men's minds. We might call it brain warfare. Its aim is to condition the mind so it no longer reacts on a free will or rational basis, but responds to impulses implanted from outside. If we are to counter this kind of warfare, we must understand the technique the Soviet is adopting to control men's minds. For the CIA, brain warfare was no hypothetical scenario. Dulles appointed Gottlieb as the chief of the chemical division of the technical services staff, and Gottlieb promptly got to work. His staff of CIA and Army chemical scientists raced to evaluate drugs for their mind-controlling potential. The drugs were a new challenge for Gottlieb. In the early days, CIA chemists worked on the sort of thing you'd find in a kid's spy movie, 
stink bombs, and exploding cookie dough. But under Gottlieb, the work evolved. Operating from an army base in Fort Detrick, Maryland, his team brewed countless recipes of sabotage, from botulinum toxins to paralyzing agents. They formulated deadly liquids from shellfish toxins and crocodile bile. And the herbal stuff, things like mescaline and marijuana, were combed for their truth-seeking properties. No question was too outrageous. Could they dissolve a concrete wall with a chemical? Could they induce amnesia? The projects had code names like Bluebird because they wanted tight-lipped informants to sing. Gottlieb was unassuming in appearance, tall, thin, with a stutter. But he was ruthless about his work, an absolute monster. And he ushered in a horrifying chapter of American history. In 1951, when four Japanese men were suspected of working for the Soviet Union, Gottlieb escorted a group of scientists to Tokyo. The team injected the men with stimulants and depressants until they confessed. They were tortured, without a trial, without anything resembling justice. All four men were executed and dumped into Tokyo Bay. Gottlieb repeated the protocol with 25 prisoners of war in North Korea. They refused to renounce communism. They too were executed. Gottlieb would even board a plane headed for the Congo with an unknown toxin meant to assist in the CIA-sanctioned assassination of the country's prime minister. Gottlieb wound up throwing the substance in the river because too much time had passed and it had grown unstable. But the prime minister would live just another few weeks before he was reported dead. The CIA denied having anything to do with it. Dulles had officers pursuing non-chemical means too. Hypnosis, electroshock therapy, brain surgery. And as they worked, the CIA inched closer to their goal of brainwashing someone, convincing someone to act in a manner contrary to their nature. A CIA psychiatrist, for example, successfully induced an office secretary into a state of sleep. Then he told another secretary to wake her up. And if she couldn't, she should pick up the gun and shoot. The secretary couldn't wake up her colleague, so she picked up the gun, took aim, and fired. Of course, it wasn't loaded. While homicidal secretaries seemed like a promising start, this kind of experimentation could only go so far. After all, these were government employees who had agreed to be subjects. On some level, they were complicit. They wanted to follow orders. It would be another matter entirely to coerce the enemy into confessing. And no external force seemed capable of doing that. It had to be something chemical. Something to make the brain pliable, malleable. Something that left it impressionable. Remember, Americans were coming home denouncing domestic ideals, turning their backs on the country, and the CIA wasn't just in the business of identifying intelligence threats. They were, in many ways, a defense agency. The enemy was waging a war of neurons now, and Alan Dulles believed the fate of the United States of America rested on it. 
So that's where Sidney Gottlieb found himself, surrounded by psychologists looking to hack into brains through brute force, the stakes impossibly high. He kept looking at files, hoping to find a trace of something promising. He rewound back to the Office of Strategic Services and to George White, who had already been tasked years prior with finding a truth drug. And if his experience with August Del Gracia was any indication, White had found it. The very same drug White had spent his days arresting people for was the same thing he was dosing people with across the country. You know, for the sake of democracy. And a little later, for fun. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part 3. Meeting of the Minds 
Gottlieb's interest in White came at a crucial time for the narcotics agent. There was an opening for the district supervisor's job in New York. White was so certain he'd be selected for duty that he started moving into the vacant office, hanging pictures up on the wall. He stayed there for weeks until word came in. His supervisor, Harry Anslinger, couldn't give him the job. New York Governor Thomas Dewey despised White. White had stated the mafia was trying to bribe the government to get Lucky Luciano out of prison in order to help the Allied invasion of Italy, which fairly directly implicated Dewey. Dewey was the one who commuted Luciano's sentence. White had never forgotten what Little Augie had said about Luciano, and he wanted to nail someone for it. Unfortunately, it was a bad political move. Fingering Dewey put White in the crosshairs of some powerful people. This won't be the last time Dewey causes problems for White. And once again, George White was denied an opportunity he felt he deserved. But Sidney Gottlieb? He had no such concerns. To Gottlieb, George White was everything he could ever ask, a perfect soldier for brain warfare. Not only did White have extensive narcotics experience, he was a trained killer. Beyond Little Augie, White maintained a network of underworld associates. He was a conduit to a world Gottlieb wanted to exploit. Who better to experiment on than society's unwashed masses, the pimps, prostitutes, drug dealers, users, and mafia cronies? And George White had access to all of them. Even if the subjects found out and wanted to complain, they'd never go to the police. Silence was their universal trait. Gottlieb knew he needed White, someone to take his lab theories and test them on the streets. Of course, one federal agency doesn't simply plunder the employees of another federal agency without going through the proper channels. So Gottlieb called White's boss, Harry Anslinger, to get his blessing. Anslinger, who was busy telling the press heroin was now the number one drug scourge in the country, didn't have a problem with it. White had long been among his favorite agents. He told Gottlieb if he wanted White part-time, that was fine with him. He didn't realize the CIA would soon become White's all-consuming obsession. In early 1952, Gottlieb finally met White in Washington. It was the real-life equivalent of the Emperor recruiting Darth Vader. The CIA chemist would later describe the man he shook hands with as gruff and loudish, but who could turn urbane to a point of eloquence. Gottlieb was experiencing the dichotomy of White for himself. Rather than sit in a conference room, White suggested another way of getting to know one another. He invited Gottlieb to accompany him to Boston, where he was working on an investigation concerning a small business owner and millionaire who claimed to be working real estate, but was clearly profiting from a heroin ring connected to a New York crime family. On the way there, they talked business. I've read about the marijuana experiments you did for the OSS. It's fascinating stuff. I knocked my own ass out, you know? <laughs> Do you think it's less than ideal for our purposes? Well, you need to tell me what your purposes are. So Gottlieb did. He explained the agency's suspicions that the Soviets had a truth drug in their arsenal and that the country was under substantial communist threat. Some subversive action was needed, action sanctioned by CIA director Alan Dulles, who had the blessing of President Dwight Eisenhower. The specifics were up to Gottlieb. 
There are a lot of drugs with potential, but we need to be careful of blowback. I mean, if someone catches on you drug them, then maybe they'd go to the police. A criminal might not. No. And you know what else? I am the police. Gottlieb and White got along. White told Gottlieb about his frustrations over being passed up for government jobs in the past, the feeling he wasn't good enough. And Gottlieb understood. The man with a club foot had been rejected for military service. He knew the sting of rejection. Gottlieb walked away from his encounters with White, feeling very good about his potential as a CIA consultant. And that title wasn't plucked from thin air either. If Gottlieb could actually follow through on his plan to drug random civilians, he needed a certain distance from White. He needed to be able to say, George White doesn't work for the CIA. Just in case things went wrong. And this isn't exactly a spoiler, but things were about to go very, very wrong. A company man, Gottlieb reached out to his supervisors to get the necessary clearances to officially enlist White. But the intelligence world is murky. Gottlieb didn't know that another CIA officer, James Angleton, had already contacted White for an earlier drug project. Angleton didn't mention it, and neither did White. Gottlieb would later say it was all part of the duality of intelligence work. In the CIA, they even sneak around on one another. When Gottlieb formally offered White the job, White had to submit to a CIA background check. And while he undoubtedly had a colorful past, the check lasted for a very long time. One month. Two months. Then six months. The CIA's personnel department seemed to be hung up on George White. And White thought he knew why. A couple of crew-cut pipe-smoking punks had either known me or heard of me during the OSS days and had decided I was too rough for their league and promptly blackballed me. White had little love for the starched collars of federal officers. To White, they didn't get their hands dirty the way he did. Agents locked themselves in offices, reading reports, while White was dodging bullets and making cases. One CIA officer would later say White was friends with criminals, prostitutes, drug dealers. They were a little in awe of him, a little scared, and a little dismissive. Officials may have delayed his application because George White was a wrecking ball. But there was also some reluctance in handing over full control of the drug experiments to Gottlieb. The Office of Scientific Intelligence wanted eyes on the project. So did the Office of Security. There were clearly people within the CIA who didn't want Gottlieb to have the unchecked authority he wound up with. And this part, it's important to remember, the chain of command wasn't the CIA, Gottlieb, and White. This whole thing was Gottlieb's show, run however he saw fit. White only had to answer to him. If Gottlieb was watching White, well, who was watching Gottlieb? No one. Alan Dulles had given him total, unrestricted freedom. There was just one wrinkle to recruiting White. At the moment, George White was sitting in jail. 
At first, Gottlieb thought White had been caught with a few drug samples he'd innocently passed to him during one of their meetings. But then he was told the truth. White had actually been thrown in a cell for contempt of court. In front of a judge, he refused to name an informant for a grand jury. White told the judge that the last time one of his informants had been identified, the man wound up dead in an alley. Gottlieb sprang into action, getting White legal counsel. The lawyer ultimately advised White to name the man in a closed-door session. While it's not typical to do your recruiting from a jail cell, Gottlieb saw it as a sign of White's valor. This was a man who couldn't be shaken from his core values. On January 1st, 1953, Sidney Gottlieb made it official. George White was a CIA consultant. The man who had resented the organization for rejecting him over and over was now bestowed with all of its powers. In his diary, White wrote a brief note. Gottlieb proposes I be a CIA consultant. I agree. Think about that statement for just a minute. Does it sound unusual to you? Gottlieb proposes I be a CIA consultant. I agree. In what could be considered his first pertinent act as a CIA consultant, White had just written down the real name of his supervisor. This wasn't something you were supposed to do. Dating back to Camp X, White had known the value of keeping names out of written material. It was Espionage 101. But just a few minutes into his role in one of the most well-guarded secrets in American intelligence, White was scribbling names down. It was a reckless thing to do. It broke a rule. It wasn't the only rule George White was about to break. Next time on Operation Midnight Climax. In one of their first meetings, Sidney Gottlieb handed White an ampule of LSD. This could be the key to everything, providing White was willing to make some bold moves on behalf of his country. Without knowing it, White and Gottlieb were about to usher in the psychedelic age. White looked at the ampule, and his mind started to turn. He put it in his pocket, like a bullet loaded into a chamber. And then he went off in search of a target. Operation Midnight Climax is hosted by Noel Brown. This show is written by Jake Rosen. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Ernie Inderdat and Natasha Jacobs. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson and Marisa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Special thanks to David Krumholtz, Vanessa Krumholtz, Ted Ramey, and Jason Thompson. Julian Weller is our supervising producer. Our executive producers are Jason English and Mangesh Hatikater. See you next week. Operation 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.